Follow me, some people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. I'm here with Steve D. It is May the 5th that we're recording this. US markets are just about still open, but most of the week's news is in. It's been an interesting week in my portfolio, and I think it's been an interesting week in Steve's as well. How are you doing, Steve? How's your week been? Pretty good, Steve, to be honest. Yeah, pretty good week. Um, first uh, three days, no, actually I had a decent week, a decent day on Tuesday. Monday was a bit of a dodgy day. Tuesday was decent. Wednesday was dodgy. Uh, Thursday was a decent day when everybody else, uh, the market seems to be falling apart for everyone else. But today, Steve, it's gone mad up about 1.81% just on my ISO, which is actually, uh, it's less than the S&P, which is a bit worrying for me. And normally uh, when the S&P is up 2%, I usually uh, I usually quite handily beat it. So it's always a bit worrying for me when I slip behind it. NASDAQ's up 2.35. I'm beating the Dow, but I think that's not much to celebrate. Uh, I think the Dow was actually negative on the year, which is kind of incredible. Um, but yes, Eve, did you have you had a good day? Did you enjoy the picture of the bricks I sent you today? I did enjoy the picture of the bricks you sent me. Yes, you sent me some Forterra products, which is how we know that our sales are going well on the brick company that both of us own. And I think might have accidentally convinced some other people into as well. Um, kind of hope not. I don't want anyone to start buying things because they think we own them. But that's probably our sales for the year, I think, sorted. That pile of Forterra bricks that you that you sent me. Uh, but yeah, nice to do some boots on the ground research. My portfolio's gone up and down this week. More down than up, because we've had another banking crisis of a sort. And it's kind of unwound itself, but not completely. And it's also been quite a choppy week for macroeconomic stuff. Short week in the UK, uh, of course. It was a bank holiday on Monday. Uh, and there's another one coming in uh, two days' time. So... What we have coming up is a month or a quarter, I guess, part of a quarter with two fewer or one fewer working day than normal and a fair bit of other bank holiday activity. It feels to me like a recession is inevitable, Steve, with this many days off. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? But again, I think when people are after a recession, I think a lot of people think a recession is like some kind of trigger. Like when the minute it's announced, the market's just going to fall like 35%. And that's not what's going to happen because... uh, you know, technically there is a difference between technical recession and a proper recession, and I think this is what we're going to be going to be calling a technical uh, recession. And when it's as obvious as this, um, it's not a shock. The, the shocks are when you know, when like the the credit the credit crunch happened or or, or things like that. That that's not what we're going to have. So um, yeah, it seems obvious to me, Steve. But then when things are obvious in economics, they often don't happen. Yeah, otherwise this would be much easier and there would be, well, there would still be a use for us. We don't really provide useful information. We mostly provide like entertainment and bants and stuff. Um, I'm not convinced that that's much better than the kind of information we're providing, to be honest. Not convinced you have the right age to use the word bants? No. Okay, uh, this is a new segment called 30-somethings try and figure out what younger people's words mean. Uh, welcome to our show. Uh, well, okay, let's leave off the, that bit then. 
Um, let's talk about things that have been happening. There's been quite a bit going on. It's that time of the season where we start getting loads of macroeconomic data through, quite a bit from the US. The Federal Reserve pushed interest rates up this week again by a quarter of a percent, taking them to 5.25%. And what feels to me like it's the case every time they raise some rates, people started saying, this is the last one. Uh, and they said this would be the last one. Uh, from what I could tell from the Powell stuff... He didn't say that at all. Uh, he said it was going to be data-driven from here. And I had two observations about that. One was that I thought he'd always said it was going to be data-driven. And he'd seen the data and kept driving it, from what I could tell. Uh, the other was that data-driven, as opposed to what-driven, as opposed to what happened when he got out of bed in the morning, or what he had for breakfast, or whether his wife decided she wanted rates to go up or down. Uh, I sort of felt like this wasn't really... I, I thought, I guess... I guess what I thought is this is mostly a reflection of how much people want interest rate hikes to stop uh, more than a real case for thinking it will. I wouldn't be surprised to see another one coming through, Steve, but uh, let's start there and we'll pick out a couple of other macroeconomic bits along the way. I think it's a wait and see now. I think they'll they'll want to see what happens to uh, inflation at the at the next report before before they do anything. I did notice that they, the, the reason most people are bullish is because they took out the statement about needing to to do significantly more increases or whatever the whatever the saying was it was crossed out in the report as the, the changes wasn't it so um yeah i i don't know steve i think i think we we're a lot closer than we we were you know just a just a few months ago now to, to this being the the last rate hike and to be honest with you i don't i'm not entirely sure it matters massively anymore because i think once inflation comes down i think we're going to see these this rate start to to come down as well when they feel safe about it so whatever it ends up getting to i think it's going to be moving off it just as quick so um yeah i'm not i mean i don't think we're going back to to zero or one or you know half a percent or whatever it was at one point or negative like the eu did i don't think we'll end up going down that low but i could see us settling at two and a half or two three maybe three and a quarter percent and and just seeing what happens um the economy well the economy's everywhere i mean uh, who would have we we didn't <laughs> for that as we didn't think the eu would be able to uh to lift its rates anywhere near what it has and suffer the rate increases that uh, all the other economies around it has had so the fact that the eu is i mean it 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 turned out not point one percent growth i think which is about the the minimum they'll uh they'll they'll report but it still grew in the foot in the face of all of these rate hikes which shows you that the eu has been a lot more resilient than we thought the uk has been a lot more resilient than we thought and america has been incredibly resilient so um steve you've got some data on the non-fab payrolls that came out today what what, what did they say i have yeah they also came out looking looking reasonably strong and that's why things have been moving higher on this friday afternoon by our standards in the uk so non-farm payroll numbers came out at 180,000 versus uh, sorry expected 180,000 came in at 253 i think uh unemployment number was three and a 3.4 percent versus 3.6 expected um, and 160 against 230 on the private uh, non-farm payroll numbers. So people are in jobs, Steve, and inflation is gradually working its way down for the US. This is this is what you were talking about at the start of the year. You talk about this. This is the soft landing that we uh, that we didn't think was possible. And I think even if you ex you know sat 
the best economists in the world down and told them the story up until now, but didn't tell them the non-farm payrolls, they would have said to you, there's going to be a lot of people out of jobs. I think we'll probably be at 10% unemployment. And look, here we are still adding tons of jobs in America. And uh, the unemployment rate just keeps coming in low. It's not, I don't think it's even... I don't think it's even grown from the uh th- from the from the previous reports Steve. Uh, sorry has uh, fallen from the previous report which is incredible in the face of what we're seeing the the idea of of economics is that when they when they toggle the uh, the interest rate toolbox is that people are supposed to stop spending stop hiring and that's one of the ways to bring inflation down and this just isn't happening it's it seems to be coming down mostly with tough comps um because I mean as you'll see with the uh, the BP results coming soon Steve Stuff like oil is not coming down, and usually, oil is one of the first things that comes down to help uh, help smooth out inflation. Yeah, early is indistinguishable from wrong, of course. And I was saying, I said last year that inflation would start coming down, mostly based on tough comps. That was one of my predictions for twenty twenty two, and I was terrifically wrong. Uh, it just defied the tough comps and kept going, basically. But the US is currently going pretty much according to plan, as far as I can tell. Their interest rates have well, I think now crossed over inflation, so they are, uh, and I don't mean the kind of uh, bond yields, I mean federal funds reserve rate. I think that's now positive at five and a quarter versus about 5% inflation. So they're, they're creeping back into the kind of territory they want to be in. I think you're right that the idea is to eventually settle this at somewhere around the 2.5% mark. That's with inflation at 2%. Uh, so they might keep pushing forward for a little bit. I think they, I wonder whether they go one more here. And it feels like a kind of delicate balancing act here because as much as Powell has said from the get-go that the ambition is to get inflation down and get it down in reasonably short order, right? Not just sit around waiting for it, but chase it with some interest rate hikes. And they were, they've been pushing these along at not this most recent one or the one before it, but before that they were pushing them along at kind of double and triple uh, interest rate hikes to not hang around with this so i sort of wonder it feels like now it would be a real pity for for pal to kind of upset the apple cart a little bit by this sort of thing the job's only half done isn't it i think he just Mm. needs to push through now i I don't think we'll see any any uh uh foot on the brake in terms of at least pulling the rates down until we see this two percent which might end up causing deflation but i think that's um that's kind of the aim, I think. I think they're they're not particularly worried about a short a period of short term deflation. They uh, they just want to get inflation down. I think the general theme of my week looking at stuff in the news has been people reading things that I don't think other people are saying, uh, which is it's kind of a weird theme. But with the Powell stuff, I thought people were reading a bit more than was there in terms of okay, rates are going to stop. They're going to wait and see, and they're going to go data dependent. I wonder where the Powell might find the data for another one. Uh, And I don't view that as, I'm not as confident they're going to stop as other people are. Another person that people have been, in my view, misreading is Jamie Dimon, uh, who, there was another dip basically recently because of banks and PacWest is the latest uh, bank to find itself at the centre of attention on this. So before that we had First Republic, before that we had Credit Suisse, before that we had SVB. And we're busy figuring out exactly where the next thing might come from here. But Jamie Dimon said uh, after JP Morgan's takeover of First Republic that there may be another smaller one uh, of these, but this pattern pretty uh, this pretty much sorry resolves uh, them all. This part of the crisis is over. Q immediate dip from Pac uh, triggered by Pac West stuff. 
and people said Jamie Dimon said the crisis was over. Uh, I I'm not sure that's what he said. I thought he said that part of a crisis was over. And actually, the bit I took away from that was, wait a minute, there's another part to this crisis. Uh, either before or after, whichever way you're thinking of it, I did not hear crisis over. I heard crisis going on, but wait for the next phase of uh, crisis coming down the track. So I thought people uh, were a bit quick on criticising him there for something he hadn't said. Yeah, I think he was basically saying this chapter is over, but mm. not the book. Yeah, you know, we've won this battle, but not the war kind of thing. Um, yeah, interesting, really. They, also, the SEC have announced that they've seen a lot of, um, they think there's been a lot of stock manipulation around these kind of uh, banks as well to cause a, a additional fears. So uh, that will be interesting to see what the outcome uh, of that report is. But yeah, I think it, it was strange. I think a lot of people do take, um, and I think it happens a lot with Buffett and Munger and um, Ben Graham and things like that, and that they really, really stretch the things they're saying. They're like, no, what what he actually means is, and you know, no, he doesn't mean that. What he actually means is, and I guess it's a bit like the Bible. You know? <laughs> and, and, and these people are investing Jesus, but mm. um, yeah, I don't know. I I, I think it was a pretty interesting uh, point from. Jerome Powell and, and he's done very well out of this First Republic deal I think that's a cracking deal for JPM as we thought Silicon Valley was a cracking deal for HSBC and has since proven to they basically in two months got 1.5 billion of profit for a pound yeah um, which is just like why why can't why couldn't I buy it for a pound I mean I, I, I would have settled for 1.5 billion Steve would you I, I would have settled for 1.5 billion. The reason I couldn't buy it for a pound, I think, is mostly to do with liquidity issues. But these don't apply to you. You could have covered stuff like uh, SVB UK's um, outstanding potential run on deposits. Uh, if you want something to, on that subject, actually, if you want something to complain about Jamie Dimon for saying, I was hearing a few weeks back as the SVB mostly thing was going around and there was a hint of a bit of First Republic action and people were looking at all the regionals and thinking, wait a minute, we should probably check these uh, uh, maturity dates on stuff. Uh, or sell-by dates, I guess. Um, they sent an internal memo around JP Morgan where they said that, that people, uh, the company, quote, should never give the appearance of exploiting a situation of stress or uncertainty. If this isn't exploiting a situation of stress or uncertainty, I don't think I know what is. In fairness to Jamie Dimon, I would. Uh, if I was JP Morgan, I don't blame him even slightly for it. But they're busy posting memos amongst the big banks, and it's not just them, it's also Bank of America, Citigroup, so on and so forth, uh, saying, right, we need to not just like shaft the regionals here, right? Uh, we need to make sure, because otherwise we're going to get regulated too much, probably, um, and, and there's going to be all kinds of issues. Like, just kidding, guys, <laughs> I will have them for absolutely nothing from what I can tell of it. I looked at the deal they had with the regulator. Regulator takes 80% of losses on commercial loans for five years, 80% of losses on mortgages for seven years, provides 50 billion in financing in exchange for JP Morgan provides 10.6 billion to them now and pays back uh, the other banks that were bailing out uh, First Republic before. Um, this is as close to risk-free as you get for JP Morgan. It's a nice deal, right? It, it is a nice deal, isn't it? And it's too nice, isn't it? It's the sort of deal that uh, in any other situation, would have no chance of going through. It just would not be allowed. But, you know, like I've said a number of times, Steve, when uh, the situation gets a bit stickier, start to see the bigger deals being allowed through because 
you know, they did sort of keep people in a job. And First Republic was a very big bank. I think they said it was was it the second biggest ever failure? Was it mm-hmm. from, from obviously from its highs to yep. to its failure? So that was a big fail. Enjoyed Diamond coming out and just sort of gloating as he always. Uh, and he is actually to be fair, he is he isn't a gloaty person, but when he does gloat, you know he's done something quite important. And he said something along the lines of, "Steve, we'll just let the other people do stupid things, and then when they get in trouble, we'll buy them." And that's what he did. That's that's pretty much accurate, right? And as you pointed out, this is a deal that wouldn't have gone through in normal times. One one of the restrictions that I understand was waived for this is there is a rule about how much of uh, consumer deposits any UK, US bank can control, and this was known to push JP Morgan above it. But of course, when the bank's in distress and the regulator needs somebody to help, and you're the person sat there with cash... What are they going to do? Say, no, no, we can't have that. We've made a rule. Rule goes out the window, uh, basically. That's one of the things I sort of take away from all of this more than anything else, which is if you're two rule, two lessons, actually, I kind of take from this. One I already knew. One is if you're big and have cash, rules are basically optional uh, in a lot of cases, especially when stress starts coming down. The other is it's really important to match up your kind of um, assets and liability durations. So, uh, as far as I can tell, this is basically like you or me having a credit card that you're due to pay at the end of the month, and you say, oh, it's all right, I've got it sat around in a three-year bond. Uh, that's kind of not how that works. You have to pay that off quicker. Um, okay, you have it covered in an asset that you own, but it's you need that sooner rather than just sat there for a while. That's it, isn't it? The difference is, is that if we if we get a bond at the wrong time, we can just hold it, but they don't have that choice. If they get too many of the ones and they can't, uh, and they need the money all of a sudden, they've got to get rid of them. We we should never have a reason why we need the money. But I actually think JPM had just crept above the limit that it was allowed to have before it had acquired uh, First Republic. So that is actually an additional uh, bit. But the thing is, the problem is, is that um, nobody else nobody else wanted to stick it on. I mean, which is amazing, really, considering the deal that JP, uh, JPM managed to thrash out for it, um, that th- there wasn't other people willing to willing to take the, the lack of risk, I guess. And they must have thought there was something horrendous in that portfolio, but I, I didn't, I, I haven't spotted it. I haven't spotted it. I wouldn't have spotted it. That's not a sign. It's not there. You need 10 and a bit billion uh, lying around to do that deal. And that limits to some, limits to some extent the pool of uh, potential customers. But most of the bigs are available uh, for this, I think. Citigroup have their own things to worry about. I wonder whether Wells Fargo... Well, so Wells Fargo is meant to be under an asset cap at the moment. And I'm pretty sure they are up against that asset cap. But... We have kind of discussed that the rules are sort of optional if there's a bank in stress. Would the regulator say to Wells, no, you're under an asset cap, you can't do this? They'll say, all right, fine, watch them go then uh, and see what happens. I doubt the regulators would uh, insist on their asset cap if it came to if it came to it on that. So maybe there are other kind of candidates there, but um, good deal for JP Morgan shareholders. I'm not one. Uh, you're not one. Paul is one, uh, which is why he is off on his yacht this week, currently enjoying the, uh, I don't know how many billion he's just got for his shares uh, in JP Morgan. Still, there are other companies to talk about. There are some closer to home as well. Uh, Where shall we start, Steve? Shall we start with BP? Let's do it. BP reported earnings uh, this week. We don't normally talk about these guys, but I thought they were kind of interesting, and uh, Steve's found some stuff as well. Their stock went down quite sharply on the day. It went down 9% on the day. It's come back a little bit, I think, uh, since whenever it was, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, that these guys published their earnings. 
The reason their stock went down was it's being reported as twofold. Uh, one is that their underlying profits were down 20% compared to the first three months of last year. And the other is that they have slowed the pace of their buybacks quite dramatically. So their profits were $3.97 billion, which was down 20%. They've announced they're going to buy back $1.4 billion. I've tried to turn these back into pounds, by the way, because BP reports in dollars. I insist on putting it in pounds for reasons other than, for no reason other than it's listed on the uh, FTSE. So uh, 1.4 billion pounds worth of buybacks. Last quarter, they bought back 2.18 billion. So it's a 36% drop in the level of buybacks coming. Uh, Stock is now down 7% or so this week. It was 9%. There are a couple of things that I thought people were being a bit too enthusiastic about here. I mean, one thing is to note is the period for comps here is around the Russian invasion of Ukraine when oil prices went through the roof because everything suddenly became very energy uncertain. And the buyback thing is only a consequence of the profits thing. So BP has a commitment to repurchase with 60% of their excess cash, however they define that. And that's just what that comes out to uh, at these prices. So it's now $1.4 billion. Um, I have some other stuff that caught my eye, Steve. But what did you think of BP? Well, it was very, very interesting to me. So I saw a company here that are churning out massive amounts of profit. In fact, I saw an industry here that was churning out massive amounts of profit, Steve. So I thought... This is what tends to happen with a cyclical business, that when they get to top cycle, they tend to make tons and tons and tons of cash. And because they don't know what to do with this cash, they tend to raise their capex to such limits that they go and open wells and buy each other in stupid overpriced deals. And they buy things that have uncertain futures because it doesn't matter if they can get oil out the ground and just make a fiver on it. That's that's fine. And they're going to do all this. Thing. Do you know what I found? Not a single one of them is spending anywhere near like the sort of capex that you would you would expect at this kind of time. So here's an example for you. BP. Uh, in 2019, they did $25 million in operating cash flow. Steve, they did uh, $25 billion, sorry in operating cash flow, nearly 26. And they did $15 billion in capex. So quite a big portion of that going out in capex. They did $41 billion in op cash flow this year, uh, the occurs of this year, Steve. They've only done $12 billion in CapEx. So they're actually reducing their CapEx. And what I think they're doing here is they're trying to extend the cycle. I think all of these companies realize that if they don't open new oil wells, they don't drill as much oil as they can, they can keep this pr- this oil price pretty high and this will be the first time ever that we have seen a case of you know the cure for high oil prices is high oil prices because they're not doing stupid stuff so that is an interesting statistic for me Steve that made me go and have a look at all of the miners as well they're doing the same stuff they're not spending as much as they used to uh, when they made a lot of money. Normally, the capex cycle for something like this would leave them with about five billion in in operating cash flow. So this figure should be about thirty six billion. It's a third of that, Steve, and that makes me think that's pretty interesting. One of the other things I realised was how how shite the uh, windfall tax has been on BP because did you know it applies only to their UK profits? So this only amounted to about one percent of their total profits. So it was it was not not an awfully large tax bill, uh, and also all it's meant is that BP and Shell, for that matter, have looked at North uh, North Sea Oil and Gas and said, "We're just not going to spend there. We're not going to bother." So we have basically implemented a, a tax that has hamstrung our own industries uh, for the uh, for the foreseeable. And I, I don't understand why we, we we thought that would go any any different, Steve. But yeah, that is a really interesting trend that I've spotted there, and it makes me. Uh, 
well, it does make me kind of a little bit bullish on oil. Uh, not that I'm going to go out and buy one, but BP's trading at five times earnings at the moment, Steve. And normally you would look at that with absolute fear and say, hell, this is coming down and this is coming down fast. But then you look at the capex of all of these companies and you think, hang on a second, they've actually figured out how to master the market cycle a little bit here. Yeah, this was a theme that was on the Baron Streetwise podcast quite a few months ago now, and I didn't believe it at the time. They were they were talking to a guy from a company called Devon Energy, which is an oil and gas producer out in the States. It was, I think, leading the S&P 500 at one point, and it had gone up an awful lot, and dividends were huge, and they were saying... Uh, yeah, look, this time oil companies have decided we're not just going to go and hammer it all into new wells and drilling and so on. We're going to send it back to shareholders via massive dividends and buybacks and, and whatever your preferred method for doing that is. And I sort of listened to it and thought, bet you say this every time. Bet you say this every time it goes high. We're going to just kind of... Um, this time this time we're going to keep the price high guys and then it doesn't basically this is around the time that we were hearing about markets that would never be the same again had never been this way before and this is absolutely not like any other kind of bull market we've seen they all are um so i didn't really buy this but people are increasingly talking about this thing called a commodity super cycle which basically means a kind of longer bull market for commodities and they're talking about that in fairly um convinced terms here i uh, I kind of don't want to believe it, but I feel like it's it's there to be seen that dividends at oil companies in general have been pretty high, uh, whether it's the majors or uh, you've seen massive buybacks from Chevron and Exxon actually recently in the in the majors uh, or the kind of smaller producers like your Devon Energies. They are returning their cash to shareholders rather than driving their capex cycle higher. So there's a, there's a lot of plausibility to this, and that is starting to show through where I was kind of initially sceptical of it. One thing I wasn't sceptical, that I was closer to being right about, because, you know, it happens twice a year, so I have to point it out when it does. I thought a windfall tax was a stupid, immoral idea uh, at the time. I thought it was basically being done for political reasons, which I think still think it was being done for political reasons. Boris was pretty much anti-windfall tax, but it turned out to be a very popular-sounding thing, so he went for a windfall tax. I didn't think that was a good idea. I still don't think it's a very good idea. Uh, I rather regret the way it's been done as well. And it didn't help them in the locals either in the end of, the end of the day, did they? They got absolutely battered. Yep, so that didn't help there. But you've hit on the reason that I'm not buying BP shares, by the way. When I saw the headlines for the UK on the BP uh, earnings, it was all kind of slightly two-sided in the sense of BP posts record profits while households struggle to pay their bills um, and that may be perfectly true by the way um, that there are households struggling to pay their bills as a result of oil prices and BP are profiting in a way that is inextricably linked to that I think the danger I see there is that rightly or wrongly and I'm not moralizing on this particular occasion I have done before and I no doubt will do again I think that will mean that BP is always in a fairly fragile political uh, situation. Maybe, and I don't know this for sure, maybe more than the US bigs. Um, I, don't, I couldn't tell you how you know, attacks on, say, Chevron or Exxon or uh, ConocoPhillips would go, or even Total out in um, Europe. But I think if I, were wor- if I owned BP shares, I wouldn't be worried about the business very much. I would be worried about the uh, effectively the political risk of interference and 
Uh, I think Keir Starmer's proposing what he calls a quote-unquote proper windfall tax. God knows what that looks like, but I imagine it's worse for BP somehow. And that would be the kind of thing that would cause me to worry about this. I wonder whether this is partly or all of the reason why BP typically trades at a lower multiple than the other oil majors, because it's slightly vulnerable to this sort of thing, or my perception is it's vulnerable to this sort of thing, I would want a discount as a result. We can come back to their um, dividends in a moment, but uh, what do you think? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, it trades on a very low multiple, and Looney has been on a, a US charm offensive tour. He's been out uh, basically visiting all of the pension and hedge funds to promote BP. He's been going over the, um, the new plan for BP, which is... Uh, they're basically shelving a lot of their green uh, plans because they can get a better return on investment from their oil wells, Steve. They they're, they're, they're not going to get that level from their, from their green energy. And as we know, Steve, there has never, ever been a... Uh, an an energy commodity that we've used um you you know we've switched from and used less of we use more coal than we did before we found oil it's just it's just how it is we just constantly use more so oil that we thought was potentially going into term uh, like into terminal decline there there is no such thing uh, as an energy commodity and if it did it would be the first time it's ever happened so uh, that'd be interesting Steve but I think at five times earnings, if you was in a, a a US pension fund and they're not as bothered about ESG as we are over here, we're a bit more green than they are, they must be looking at this licking their lips, Steve, because there's a lot to like about a, a company like BP on five times earnings if we're going into a commodity super cycle. Here is one thing I like about BP on five times earnings. I was scribbling on the back of an envelope uh, earlier this week when I looked at them. I think they look like a better-than-you-might-think dividend stock. So I saw, I looked into the market uh, earlier this week, and I saw some things that surprised me. So they have two lots of preferred stock out at the moment, and I like a, start, a preferred stock as much as the next guy, unless that next guy is Warren Buffett, who likes it more than me. But they have a thing that pays 9p a share, and that's currently offering a 5% return. It's quite low liquidity, so the share price doesn't move very often, so that might be slightly out of date. But you can have a 5% yield on one type of preferred. You can have a 4.8% yield on a slightly more liquid uh, preferred. And the dividend on the common, when I looked, was 4.28. And I thought that's unusual, because normally... The trade-off uh, for certainty or, or more certainty, less risk, a better guarantee on your preferred is a lower dividend yield. So if you think about something like Aviva, uh, its preferred has about a 7% yield. Its common has a much higher yield because there's a greater chance of that common dividend getting cut, especially in a cyclical like this. So I was trying to ponder out why the hell that was the case. Why are people taking a lower return to get an inferior level of security? Here's what I came out with. The thing has a market cap of around 86 billion or a share price of 490 um, in GBX. It's got, so its buyback for this quarter is 1.4 billion, which is a 1.6 return almost immediately in a quarter. Uh, if you think the share price stays, the market cap stays where it is, 1.6, uh, 1.4 billion buys you back 1.6%. The dividend is 5.26, which is a 1.07% return in a quarter again. And I think that's unlikely to move over the rest of the year. It's up a little bit from where it was. But add those two together for the moment then, and you get a 2.67% passive income return in a quarter. There are four quarters in a year. Times that by four, and you're going to get about a 10.6% yield or something like that, which is, this is very rough maths from my part here, but... Uh, what else is paying a 10% dividend that's not called legal in general? 
not even Shell anymore. I don't think. I think Shell cut their dividend, didn't they? And um, they're not. They don't look to be bringing that back. They must be sat on a mountain of cash as well, because I think Shell's only on about five and a half times earnings as well. So uh, not egregiously priced. I guess the only thing I can think of that pays a dividend that high would be our stake in Southern Copper, Steve. It might well be. Uh, yours certainly does. I've bought some more recently than you have, so I'm only up around 70-ish percent on my stake in Southern Copper. I keep forgetting when that's paying a dividend, but I've definitely seen some cyclicality to that dividend. That isn't one that gets sort of held fairly still. That's been higher and lower at various different points, and to be honest, trading 212 could probably give me anything and label it the Southern Copper dividend, and I wouldn't notice. They did once, actually. They screwed that up, um, uh, but and then corrected it again, obviously. But I, I tend to find out how much the next Southern Copper dividend is when it arrives in my account, uh, rather than in any other time. But I think... Okay, so if uh, I'm not about to buy this stock because of the aforementioned political thing that I don't like the look of and it puts me right off BP or any UK oil company. And maybe any other oil company if I look closely enough, but I'm in the UK and I know the situation here better than I know it anywhere else. If it weren't the case, I would be looking at this as a... This is quite a nice returning stock. Where is Paul when you need him? I mean, same place he is when you don't need him, but uh, where is Paul? Uh, when I've got a 10% returning stock for Paul uh, on this kind of uh, a show. We're just going to have to pitch him oil companies when he's back. That's all right. We can, we, we've got loads of stuff to get through when he's back. Uh, we've got like months and months worth of stuff of stocks that we've thought, hey, that's got something going for it, and that's got something going hey, for it. I can talk about that for Paul 20 minutes. Like <laughs> yeah, Paul will like that. It does buybacks as well. Do they count? I'm not sure. Check out his interview on the whatever show it was to find out. Um, but anyway, enough of oil for now, Steve. Yeah, enough. Uh, okay, enough oil for now. Let's talk about something different. What have you been looking at, Steve, in the, the earnings world? Uh, I've been looking at Mercado Libra, Steve, which is uh, probably not going to surprise many people since we look at it every quarter. Uh, and I thought these were pretty pretty good earnings, Steve. I don't know whether you've seen them. Wall Street thought otherwise. Um, they're not going down about 5 or 6%, but we don't care what they think, do we, Steve? We make our own minds up. Um, so Mercado Libra, uh, just for those who don't know, I mean, I posted it on the Trading 2 on 2 um, community and, and nobody even commented or liked it or anything, the earnings. I thought, okay, <laughs> nobody knows what this is. But it's the eBay, come PayPal, come Amazon, come UPS of Latin America. Uh, and they reported uh, last week. So they have four divisions, uh, essentially. They have Mercado Libre, which is its intermediation and advertising sort of area. They have Mercado Envios, which is product sales and shipping. They have Mercado Pago, which is credit and debit and interchange and things like that, a payment solution and an insurtech. And they have Mercado Credito, their loan and credit operation. All of them grew, Steve. So uh, Libra grew at 36% to 1.4 billion. These are all year on year. Envios grew 9% to 300 million. Mercado Pago grew 46% to 800 million. And Creditor grew 33% to 500 million. So to just reiterate, four divisions, but these really fall into two buckets, which are commerce and fintech. And if we look at the figures, commerce was 1.7 billion, uh, up about 31%, which is 54%, Steve, if we're FX neutral. Uh, fintech was up 40% to 1.4 billion, which would have been 64% FX neutral. So this company is still growing really, really well. Uh, it's just a shame they have to put everything back to dollars. Um, 
So look, at these together, net revenue grew by 35% or 58% FX neutral. And all of this led to an operating profit of about 300 million. So not bad for a company, Steve, that's growing pretty rapidly. Gross profit in the quarter, Steve, grew 47 to 50.6. Uh, this is demonstrating the success and efficiency that they've been promising us for the last couple of quarters. Uh, gross merchandise volume grew 43% year on year. Um, this is FX neutral. It doubled in Argentina and saw 28% growth in both Brazil and Mexico, which are pretty hot markets for many big markets too. Uh, Envios reported that it shipped 302 million items in the quarter. This was up 19%. Fulfillment um, penetration, because remember some of these countries aren't very well connected, has improved significantly uh, with the addition of Melly Hubs. These are sort of like big Amazon lockers. They now have 4 million users. 77% of shipments were received within two days. 55% of shipments were received next day. And Melly fulfilled 44% of the orders that were taken on its store, which was a new record for them. Uh, Mercado Pago, again, this is the payment arm, grew total payment volume by 97%, reaching 37 billion. 27 billion of it was off platform. Uh, their digital wallet saw 164% increase in transactions and now has 44 million active users. Uh, Melly sees this as a, a long term strategy to sort of deepen their relationship with their customers, and, and you can see it's, it's paying off. And lastly, Steve. Melly recorded a fairly incredible 770 million in free cash flow on the quarter, which was about a 25% free cash flow margin. But don't let this skew your figures. I had a look and all of their capex seems to have been pushed back a quarter. So I wouldn't imagine it's going to be rosy at all next time. Still a great business though, Steve, and it's growing pretty quick. Terrific looking business, isn't it? It's increasingly getting to the point where I thought the other day I might take another look at this. It's back at its 21st of August 2020 prices, more or less. Uh, so it's got, if you, it doesn't pay a dividend, and I think the share count is going up, not down. Uh, I'm not certain about that. But I'm pretty sure this is, I think this is the example of thing that we tend to use when we say, what would you make of a rising share count if it meant that your revenue was growing faster? And we tend to think, well, look, if it's adding value at a faster rate than it's detracting it by printing shares, go for it. Uh, if that's the right way to finance your business. But um, if you'd held on to this stock then since August, then you would be roughly where you started. And there's been quite a bit of inflation since then. So I, it wasn't a great buyback then. And it's, it looks a lot more attractive to me. Now, you said we think for ourselves on this show, and that's absolutely true. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't bother making a show, to be honest, where I just recited things that other people thought. Obviously, I try and get my stuff informed by other people. I'd rather be wrong with my own views than uh, banal with other people's. To the point that so independent is my uh, thinking of this, and so uh, underived, I guess, um, is the fact that I didn't realise this was down. I thought I had a quick look after earnings. I thought the damn thing was up. Uh, but no, I've just had a look at the weekly chart, and it is down. And that's kind of interesting to me. There's quite a lot going on in the territories they operate in, in terms of unbanked and underbanked um, consumers. And I think there's a nice sort of market for them. I'm not particular they just seem to be quietly getting on with the job uh, from what i can see of it and that's uh, there was a time when they weren't quietly getting on with the job but now things are just moving forward and this is like growth stock 101 investing right it is yeah it is and i think the thing is about everybody's frightened of is jumping on the train and uh and the train train season at the next stop 
I don't think that's the case with Bacardo Libra. Steve, I'm going to pick you up on your common shares outstanding growth. Oh. In 2019, it was about 49 million. Uh, today, it's only 50 million. It hasn't actually moved for three years, so they are not uh, they are not paying uh, staff with uh, stock, or if they are, they are offsetting it to uh, to some degree. 54 forward PE, Steve, on on this company, which normally would be something you would balk at probably, but uh, on something that's growing this kind of speed, still only a 62 billion dollar company, Steve, which I mean, it, that's a big company, don't get me wrong, but this is uh, not so big for a company that's doing the sort of things it's doing uh, listed in America. I wonder if there's a little bit of sort of Latin America bias going on there. 54 doesn't sound like a lot to me for this, uh, actually, because I think it's going to come down quite quickly. Do you know what trailing is at all? I have a feeling that trailing might be in around three figures, and therefore this is actually coming down rapidly. I think it starts with a three, Steve, in three figures. Oh, wow. So that's that's quite a significant uh, decline, right? And uh, look, anything starting with a three in three figures is a big number uh, for a trailing PE. There's no way around that thought. But um, what you would kind of think here is that comes down quite quickly from there, right? If directly you start adding on more and more profitability, this thing goes from 300 to, I was going to say, to 150 to 70 to 50 to, to 20. And then all of a sudden things look kind of uh, okay and the stock price keeps moving forwards. Mercado Libra is the growth stock that I kind of... Uh, it's on my radar, but it's not close enough to the front of my radar, I think, uh, for me to want to do something here. And I want to own quite a lot of it for my portfolio rather than... Uh, I feel like it's the kind of thing where I stick a grand in, it goes up or doesn't go up, and I get fed up and see something and I think, that, that is a screaming buy right now. What do I sell? This, uh, basically. Yeah, and I have the same problem. The minute it runs up about forty percent, I think I'd be silly not to just take this now because mm. I, when it's when it's like six or seven hundred pound, when I tend to uh, six to seven hundred dollars, when I tend to buy it, I'm normally fairly happy with that. But when it starts running up quickly again, I tend to think, oh, this this doesn't feel this doesn't feel particularly good. But Steve, when everything money run numbers on something like this, they would always turn around to you and say, look, ten year revenue growth of uh, of about twenty five percent is just not it's not feasible. You shouldn't put in numbers in like that. You should be fairly conservative. And if you ended up putting twenty twenty five percent in cash flow growth, they would tell you you were stupid. Uh, over the last ten years, Mercado Libra has achieved forty two percent in revenue growth over ten years average. Free cash flow growth, they've only managed to grow that by a hundred and fifty percent a year. Hmm. That is kind of the issue, isn't it? It depends on where you're growing it from and to and what kind of business you are. Uh, so it very much depends on the size of market that you're in. And that's the thing I kind of like about Mercado Libra. They have a nice kind of playbook for growing into what looks like quite a large uh, market that could be that can support some growth for quite a long way. This is the thing I always struggle with, with growth stock investing, weighing the kind of size of the runway ahead of them. Um, think there's probably significant uh, scope for Mercado Libra. I'm not certain of that, but I, I, they seem like a fairly obvious candidate for where there is uh, a decent um, scope ahead of them. So I guess the last thought I have with this, and I've been thinking the same thing about Amazon, which is the company that we sort of slightly lazily compare it to uh, in in the US markets, only slightly, there are genuine similarities there, is how you would set about valuing this kind of thing. And I think Mercado Libra is probably slightly easier to value. I think the way I would go about this is a sort of sum of the parts type thing. I don't see it as a kind of conglomerate in the way that you might think there are obvious synergies there. So you have your kind of payment business, you have your kind of marketplace business. Shipping to me looks like something that is 
just that kind of Amazon model of we're going to do this better than everybody else so they can come shop on our platform or use our platform for whatever it is that they're uh, doing and our shipping is just faster than everyone else's. So why would you do it anywhere else? But I think some of the parts is the right way to value this, Steve. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think um, you could probably get away with doing a valuation like that. I think there's parts of this business that I probably wouldn't be massively interested in. I mean, mm. Envios, I think, is is admirable, but I don't really want to be the UPS of a company that you know still has dirt roads. You know, what I mean, I think that that sounds like a, that sounds like a capex nightmare. But it takes companies like this to get those roads built, I guess, doesn't it? It takes it takes demand. Demand has to be formed in areas, and then roads tend to go to those areas. That's that's capitalism one hundred and one, isn't it? So, uh, I don't know, Steve. I uh, I think um, yeah, I think I think some parts would probably work for this. I mean. It's tricky, isn't it? Because it's such a strange business, especially when it's just pushing CapEx like this and showing you what its free cash flow would be like if it wasn't spending on CapEx. But I also can't see a future where they don't need to spend a lot on a lot on CapEx, at least not, you know, not in the immediate future and maybe maybe 15, 20 years down the line. But um, I think this business just looks really, really strong. And I mean, it was given a huge boon last year when its nearest competitor was found to be fraudulent. Um, that basically kicked them into touch and, and left Mercado Libre with this this free run at the market, and uh, it seems to have it seems to have grasped it with 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 both hands. Steve, I'm just looking at the the thing uh, the the stats now. In in 2016, Steve, they were doing nineteen dollars and twelve a share. Uh, just in 2016, so now we're six years on, 190 dollars a share. Mm. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and I is one where I get in danger of getting stuck in both directions on the share price. Having thought to myself, I definitely seen this uh, around 800 in, in a real uh, drop at one point and well short of where it is now, which is about 1240 or so uh, moving around maybe slightly at the moment with the market. But around 1240 at the moment, I get used to, I've got it kind of stuck in my head of overpriced because I was looking at it back in 2020 and I think it probably was quite a lot to pay for it back in 2020. I now wonder whether people are looking in the other direction a little bit. People are looking towards, reasonably so, dividend stocks, these things kind of wax and wane in popularity. I wonder whether this is the kind of place where you might go hunting for, for things that are out of fashion in an important way. Yeah, potentially. It's also, you look at it, that it's 5x to the market over the last five years. And straight away, when you look at something like that, you think, 5x, that's that's a lot of x's. Um, how long is it going <laughs> to keep that up? But, uh, I mean, apart from this crazy patch in the middle, the growth has been fairly steady in terms of its share price. I mean, it got to, uh, it looks like it got to a high of about 1910 or something like that. And, you know, with some some tech stocks that you like thinking of Intel and things like that, you couldn't plot a path back up there from its 2000 highs. But with Mercado Libra, I, th- I think I can, Steve. I think I probably could. Interesting stuff. Let's stick with the tech stock uh, theme for the moment then, because Apple is technically a tech stock. It might look like a consumer products company to you. It might look like one to me. It might, in fact, be one, but it is a tech stock, at least according to various classification systems. And they also reported earnings this week. Last of the fangs to go, I think, this time around. Their revenues came in at $94.8 billion which is a decline of 3% from the same three months a year ago. Earnings per share were $1.52, which is pretty much where they were a year ago. 
they announced a massive... There's two parts to their uh, earnings from what I can tell of it. There's the the kind of earnings-y story and the kind of returns-y uh, story. So on the earnings side, product revenue, which is 78% of their revenue, that fell by about 4.5%. Service revenue, which is 22%, but has a much higher margin, roughly double the gross margin is the way they break it out. That was up 5%. So re- uh, overall, that makes for a kind of 3% revenue decline. Uh, new record revenues for iPhone sales for the first three months in a, a year, which is... I guess encouraging the iPhone is an important part of what they do in terms of building out their network and their ecosystem and all that kind of thing. Uh, They pushed up their dividend by about 4% and they announced um, a buyback of a sort, I guess. There'll be some buybacks going on, Steve. Anything stand out to you? Yeah, the buyback was small, uh, nearly as small as that dividend increase. uh, Mm. Yeah, it's probably not, not really worth us touching on it. It was quite interesting to see uh, quite how far some of their products have have fallen recently from the highs. I guess this is the true consumer company, isn't it? And people were obviously taking their stimmies and spending it on um, MacBooks and iPads. And we're seeing the other side of that now. I think AirPods at, uh, at about... Uh, 8.8 billion that's a one percent decline iphone two percent beat that's fine services five to be i think that's what we should probably expect from from apple going forward i think the macbook and the ipad uh, they're down 31 percent and 13 percent year in year so they're they're pretty pretty decent sized falls but i don't think they're anything to worry about steve because the other products have come along they're actually small parts of the the apple ecosystem in, in terms of what they add the actual uh products themselves have only declined about five percent when you add services in the revenue decline is like you say only three percent so this is a fine looking company doing fine looking things turning out absolutely tons of profit then they've never been a big acquirer uh, they're probably not going to be allowed to acquire anything at the size they are uh, unless they fancy a regional bank um, <laughs> and i just think what else could they do steve but issue the world's smallest buyback yeah um so they've gone for a buyback in the sort of 90 billion uh region which is three percent um they didn't specify or at least i can't find anywhere where they've specified when they will be buying back those shares so that might be over the course of the year uh if it comes out over the course of a year it's about a three percent return in a kind of quasi dividend the dividend yield at the moment despite them pushing it up is about half of one percent so you get to about a three and a half percent thing for a biggish, powerfulish, not currently under obvious pressure uh, company, that's probably about right, I think. One of the nice things about their buyback that kind of caught my eye is connected to what we were talking about last week on Alphabet, I think it was. We were talking about the extent to which their buyback might be offset by their rather large stock-based comp uh, stuff. Apple's isn't really like that. They have lower stock-based comp uh, costs than the other kind of biggish techie things. So I can I had a little look and compared them in how much stock-based comp goes out uh, from revenues. So SBC as a percentage of revenue, how much revenue is going straight out the door in printing shares to employees or anybody else for that matter. Microsoft, it's about 4%. Amazon, it's about 3.8%. Google is 6.8%. Meta is 10.3%. This comes with a large asterisk, which is that especially those last two companies have been firing everybody. Uh, And I'm looking at last year's numbers. There might well be quite a lot less of that uh, coming this year. But those are my kind of most recent uh, things. Apple, it's about 2.5%. And 
Interestingly, they're not planning huge quantities of uh, layoffs, Tim Cook was saying. They just don't have the people around to get rid of, from what I can tell. And this is kind of the Paul way of running a business. I mean, he's said before, why can't they get their hiring numbers right in the first place rather than needing to fire them all again? And I think my view's always been... Yeah, but you need people when everyone else is trying to get ahead of you. If you sit around kind of counting beans, you become, I don't know, a kind of chip company that has to start pivoting to manufacturing things instead of designing them because everyone else has left you behind by hiring a load of people. So I don't blame them for attempting to go big and then kind of cut costs down again when things happen. But it's worth noting that Apple hasn't taken that approach, mostly because, as you point out, Steve, hard to see what they kind of grow into. There's constant fascination at the idea of an apple car uh there were rumors that they might try and take over peloton at one point uh which i i I think if i was tim cook i would probably be offended at the rumors that i might try and take over peloton and that i might want to do that he's a think of what you like of him as an operator you can think he inherited a pretty cushy situation from steve jobs running apple isn't terribly difficult uh you can think he's great but whatever you think of him I mean, surely you think he's better than acquiring Peloton and attaching it to his business. To be fair, though, they could they could buy Peloton with some stuff that's down the back of his sofa, couldn't they? Um, it's, <laughs> it's not a particularly uh, not a particularly expensive. But th- there were some bright spots in this report, wasn't there, Steve? I mean, the first store opened up in India. I, I couldn't believe this was the first mm. store open in India. You can already. Uh, plot a path where uh, you know there's going to be a hell of a lot more stores um, in in India, and that's a potential um, growth path for them. But um, yeah, it's just a it's just a bloody big company, this Steve, isn't it? It trades about uh, 1.15 times to the average S and P. I saw somebody on Twitter. I think it was D. It might be D Invest. Good Twitter follow actually. He's quite a decent little dividend and value investor. Has some quite interesting opinions. He said. How on earth is this the report of a company that trades at whatever it is, 28 times earnings or whatever it is, 26 times earnings? And I said, well, that's easy for me because they're doing a $90 billion buyback. So somebody's got to sell $90 billion worth of stock to counter that buyback. There's not enough selling pressure. And when you get through that selling pressure, Buffett owns the rest. So where is the price going to go? Yeah, basically, there is a there is probably a Buffett put on... Um... Apple, which isn't part of my investment thesis. There are a couple of cases where I've thought I don't mind the idea of a Buffett put, Bank of America being one example, if anything really means they run into trouble uh, there. I suspect they'll come to some sort of arrangement with the guy who owns about 11% of them uh, and keeps owning more because they keep buying back shares. Uh, and, and I think that gives you a kind of level of security uh, from things going absolutely completely wrong. But um and I'm not sure. I, there's a kind of Buffett put there. And Apple is big enough for uh, Berkshire to keep whacking more money into it. They won't get near to owning too much of that business, particularly, I think. Yeah, I don't think he's... Well, I say I don't think he was going to want any more of it. But then when the Allegheny deal came through, it was the only thing he kept. So he obviously did want a little bit more of it. So I don't... I, I'd honestly, I second guessing Buffett is is pointless to try, isn't it? Because he's streets and streets ahead of, uh, of ahead of everyone. But I don't know, Steve, is this... Is that buy for you today? No. Uh, and the reason is that it's not attractive relative to other things. I could see my way to buying this today um, if the price of stuff like Amazon was higher and if there wasn't a quote-unquote banking crisis happening. 
that's drawing my attention elsewhere here. I don't think there's anything kind of intrinsically wrong with uh, Apple. I guess if I was a hedge fund or a research organization, I would have an outperform rating on Apple. Um, if I was thinking of it like that, I would not have since i'm not one of those things it doesn't really matter what i think of it there is stuff i would have a a kind of bigger outperform uh rating on and don't ask me what my price target would be because i don't know and i won't come up with anything sensible fair enough should we do shopify yes let's talk about shopify tell me about shopify steve more tech well I'm, i'm not sure we can call these earnings steve because there wasn't any um but the market liked what it saw shopify raced up um let's see what we can find out i guess so shopify for those who don't know is like melly i guess it's split up into a couple of sections so it has merchant solutions these are payment app stores and they have a subscription solutions kind of think of this as like a toolbox for e-commerce i guess or the 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 crm of e-commerce or the platform of e-commerce that's what i guess shopify are trying to be so Merchant Solutions is now at about 1.126 billion. It grew at 31% year on year. Subscription is about 381 million, growing at about 11%, which I thought was pretty slow. Uh, that leaves net revenue of about 1.5 billion, growing at 25%. So this is down a lot from the pandemic days. When we were covering this, Steve, it was in the hundreds. Um, 48% gross margins. These actually slipped five percentage points year on year, left them with about 717 million to play with. But oh, here comes operating expenses with 910 million, so left them with 193 million loss. Again, five percentage points worse than they were last year. Uh, this mostly comes from R&D expenses, which was incredibly 30% of revenue. That grew 5 percentage points to $458 million. Sales and marketing took another $287 million, And general and admin took another $123 million. And then there were some loan losses. So, not great. But should we be worried? Um, so, I had a look around the balance sheet. They've got about $5 billion in cash. So, they can afford to mess around at the moment. Um, a couple of other little bits was the share count grew 2.3% year in year. Stock based comp was 9% of revenue. Although, this has actually fallen year over year in terms of percentage points. So, uh, the good news was not the numbers. Uh, Shop guided <laughs> pretty well. They guided for 26% year-on-year revenue growth. Uh, That beat the estimates by about 4%. They expected gross margin to be stable. Uh, Q on Q, which is slightly ahead of what consensus was expecting. But they did mention they were going to take a $1.25 billion impairment uh, and about $145 million in severance charges uh, via asset sales and layoffs. Uh, I thought this could be a little bit of sandbagging. Uh, I guess we'll see next quarter if we bother to cover it. So founder CEO Toby Lutke, Lutke uh, released a letter in tandem with this report uh, and in it uh, he said a decision was announced to sell the majority of its logistics business to a company called Flexport. As part of the deal, Flexport will become the preferred logistics partner for Shopify and will run its fulfillment app. Shopify will get incremental 13% of the uh, of the firm to bring its stake to about 20% and it's going to get itself a board seat. So... For those who don't know Toby, he's a bit of a crybaby. He's always on Twitter whinging about something and somebody's, some, somebody's been unjust to him. Um, but it was nice to see that he can walk back the stupidest decision he's ever made and not be very sour about it. Um, I think uh, Shopify moving into uh, logistics to try and compete with Amazon and the other logistics company was pretty stupid. Um, 
so yeah, this decision, um, the CFO Harley said, brings us closer to uh, uh, Amazon's buy with Prime being integrated. Um, they told us to stay tuned and all things are moving in the right direction. And lastly, Steve, they announced another layoff of staff, about 20% headcount trim uh, again, uh, more to come when their fulfillment arm eventually changes hands for good. Uh, this is good for the stock-based comp issue I moaned about earlier, but it sucks for the people involved, and this is, again, completely Toby's fault. He's got very excited during the pandemic and failed on a number of things. Steve, this is a $79 billion company. It's about $20 billion more than Melly, would you believe? I don't think I can buy it here, but I think whoever got it at 30 uh, might have a decent company on their hands. Interesting. When I looked at this, and I don't look at this very often, Shopify, but it appears to have been pinballing around quite a bit because it keeps showing up in my notifications about either uh, the floor is falling out of it or the roof is coming off of it. The interesting thing with Shopify is I saw Twitter uh, talking about this because sometimes I can't be bothered to form an opinion at all, in which case I will present to you the things I see on Twitter. Um, They were all asking the same question, which is that, okay, so we were net revenues of about 1.5 billion. Call that six as a run rate then for the moment. Six billion in revenues... Do we have the capacity to turn a profit here? And some people were pointing out that, look, it's very easy to grow. I think this is a mistake, by the way, but some people point out, I think it's very easy to grow your revenues by selling stuff for less than you produce it for. Um, A lot of people can kind of grow revenues like that. But the trouble is, the more you grow like that, the just the faster you end up liquidating yourself. That point's true, uh, by the way. If you keep selling stuff for less than you produce it or make it or buy it for, uh, then yeah, eventually you will just run out of cash. But um, you said most of this was R&D expense, though, rather than uh, kind of SG&A, which tells me that it's more a kind of reinvestment thing than a, um, a cost of selling uh, type thing. So I sort of thought to myself, maybe they're OK here. But it looks to me like sentiment in general for Shopify is uh, start showing us some cash. And you can't blame them, can you? you can't I don't blame, blame them at all. No, no. It's just like show me, show me what, show me that you can do it, and you've got to wonder where. I mean, like I've seen people before who look at uh, Spotify's headcount and say, how can they need so many people to run this business? And I look at Shopify's R and D of expenses of thirty percent of revenue and say, what are you doing? What what is it that you need to spend four hundred and fifty eight million on in a quarter? In a quarter, that is. Bear in mind, over a year, that's a that's a a, a whole quarters of revenue disappeared uh, into into R and D. Uh, what are you doing with with that money? <laughs> what are you What have you made that is that is so good? I mean, I was expecting Shopify to be absolutely magic when I turned on it, and I could just put on like you know some used underpants, and people would buy them immediately. But that's not happening. So, what are you spending four hundred and fifty eight million on? Yeah, I mean, if it isn't uh, flogging your pants, then I mean, four hundred and fifty eight million. I'm not sure I could manage it. To be fair. But I assume the people that have been writing on Twitter that I've been looking at are not Shopify shareholders. And I don't mean that to say they're in any way uh, unintelligent or thick or saying stuff that is dumb. What I really mean is if you can't see the path to profitability, you probably shouldn't be owning uh, this this kind of stock. Um, that's another reason that I, I tend to tread carefully around this sort of area of if it's unprofitable, I'm fine with it being unprofitable in principle as long as I can see how and where the kind of 
money's going to come from eventually. But it feels like there are some people, at least on the sidelines, getting impatient with this. If they're not shareholders, I don't think Shopify should bother too much. It should just kind of tread the path it's treading. But I, I don't blame people for starting to evaluate it along those kind of metrics when they're thinking to themselves, do I want to buy this? No, it just seems to make more and more revenue and never any kind of profits. Um, that's That would be, I guess, a reasonable thing to be concerned about. I think, yeah, I think that's completely the point now. I think when we were looking at Tesla last week, we looked at their capex and we bemoaned that they weren't spending enough. They're making cars, for God's sake. Shopify is a website, and they're Tesla are only spending a little bit more than um, than Shopify, and maybe producing world-beating cars, or at least world-leading cars, or at least uh, cars that at some point have been ahead of the competition. Shopify is a damn website, and they're spending four hundred and fifty-eight million on it, Stephen. It's not magic. Last time I checked, no, it's not magic. Although, it's one that I know. I'm not trying to sink the boot in particularly. Think of this as a way of me saying smarter people than us. Uh, like it's a big motley fool uh, stock. They like this an awful lot, from what I can tell. They think of it as I think a kind of. I wrote down picks and shovels, but you said it in various <laughs> other ways. Uh, thing on e-commerce, so. Um, there might be something there for somebody who knows more about it than I do, but I can't see this as being anywhere near the right price for me at the moment. No, I can't. I, I mean, put the two together. You, you've got to buy Shopify or Melly. Uh, I mean, it'll be interesting for everybody who gets to this point in the podcast. Stick in the comments, Shopify or Melly, which one are you buying? Yeah, more likely if you're watching the short of this, uh, let us know whether you're buying Shopify or Mercado Libra. We would be interested to hear about that. I know which way I would go. I think if I was really interested in going after Shopify, the first place I would look, and we like recommending podcasts that are not ours because we're not particularly numbers driven. We spend more time producing these things than we get paid for it. So we are kind of like a podcasting Shopify. Uh, There's a business breakdowns on this, I think. Um, It's quite an old one now, but I'm pretty sure it's called token gated e-commerce or something like that. But uh, I think there is a fairly old Shopify um, business breakdown, which I will probably go and listen to if I think we're ever going to talk about this again. So, um next time we talk about shopify in uh, five to seven years and we ask whether or not they're turning a profit yet uh expect me to basically recite all of that fair enough yep anyway that's pretty much our show i had a boring thing on craft Heinz. it's not very interesting they've pushed up their prices and their volumes didn't fall away very much so did most consumer defensives but we'll cover that another day or maybe not at all i thought it was a decent earnings report uh but no one owns that stock apart from me And no one's interested in that stock apart from also me, uh, as I've been finding out by various experimental means. Uh, Thank you very much for listening to our show. We've been Steve and Steve, and we will see you next week at the same time. Bye for now.